Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Road Show. Lindsey Rhodes here counting down to draft time. We are almost a week away, a little bit over a week away, I guess would be a better way of saying that. Um, and today I want to talk about quarterbacks. This is arguably the most important position in the draft. It is certainly the one where there is the most value to be had if you actually hit on the position. Everyone's looking for a viable quarterback, takes somebody high in the draft, and that person is not a viable quarterback. It can uh, set a franchise back quite a bit in terms of untapped resources. And we've all heard that it's not the best year in terms of quarterback talent coming out. We all know, though, that there are a number of teams who need a quarterback, right? And we know that that tends to push quarterbacks up the board. That said, we've also heard that next year's quarterback class is a good one. So it's not like teams who need a quarterback have to get one now. So in trying to figure out where that leaves us this year in the draft, I think it's important to discuss a few other things, like what it means when we say it's not a great class, right? Specifically, when we go one by one, is it because they have low floors or is it because they have low ceilings? Because I think we can all agree that a low floor guy with a huge ceiling is probably more worth a gamble than an okay guy who will probably remain okay. The other thing has to do with the teams making the selections. Does it make sense for them with the ways that their rosters are constructed to take quarterbacks now? There are a few teams that we'll talk about in the episode that I think should punt, so to speak, because they're just not built right now to be competitive. And then there's this. How much better is the guy they could get in the draft than the guy they already have that they're trying to upgrade? Because while we're all ready to move on from Sam Darnold, I think that's fair to say, if you're going to take a guy sixth overall, you better be sure he's a noticeable upgrade from Sam Darnold, in my opinion. And that is why I'm really excited to talk to my guest today, Chris Trapasso from CBS Sports. Because not only is he a draft analyst for CBS Sports, who's studied these guys really closely, but he's made a point in the last few years of following up on his draft analysis and watching the first and second year quarterbacks once they're in the NFL. He writes a weekly column for CBS where he breaks down every game for the guys who fit into that category. He watches every snap and he makes it a point to understand what is working for them and what is not. And I think that that exercise could help us see the larger picture as we try to figure out how the first round might break next week. So without further ado, Chris Trapasso. Let's break the huddle. Hello, let's go! Two on, two on, two. Ready? Hi, Chris. Happy draft month. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. So the last time you were on the show, we talked about your weekly column that is dedicated to first and second year quarterbacks and their progress in the league. That's a column mm -hmm. that you've written for the last couple of years now, right? Yeah, I didn't do it uh, 2020, but in 2019 I did. So two of the okay. last three years I've watched every draft back of all first and second year quarterbacks in the NFL. It's, it's a big undertaking, but it does give me a lot of knowledge at the end of a season on these young quarterbacks. So that's why I wanted to start there, because I'm wondering how that exercise has affected the way that you view a draft class. A lot. Uh, the one biggest takeaway that from doing that exercise or that huge project, two of the past three seasons, uh, how it affects my draft evaluation process is the fact that I think in today's NFL, and this is from watching most namely Mac Jones, 
and Jalen Hurts from the Patriots and the Eagles. In today's NFL, there are so many throws that are high percentage throws. And I think offensive coordinators now more than ever are really good at scheming open wide receivers. There's a lot of RPOs. There's a lot of bubble screens. There's all different variations of screens. A lot of throws are not even 10 yards down the field. So what that has done for me is I'm looking for quarterbacks in the draft that not just can operate that offense, like I think Mac Jones did a very good job of with the Patriots, but make those high degree of difficulty throws, the big time throws, as PFF calls them, down the football field, through a tight window, maybe even when the coverage is perfect and the defense calls the right plays and the players are in the right positions defensively, but Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes or Justin Herbert still fit the the football into the target. That's why I'm a big fan of Malik Willis in this draft class. I'm looking more so for those guys that can really move the needle with their arm and legs as opposed to just managing a kind of conservative offense. So interesting then, does that mean that you in some offenses just need a quarterback who's good enough? And then do you feel comfortable understanding where the good enough line is? Yeah, it's it's hard to figure out where that line is, but it's funny that you mentioned that. I was on a, a, a recent Vikings podcast and I kind of talked about this theory that I have kind of hacking the draft or, or hacking roster building that I, I think with the right offensive play caller and certainly the skill position talent around you as a average quarterback, you can be really good. And I, in watching Mac Jones this past season, not to pick on him, but he was getting all the accolades. He was going to be the offensive rookie of the year. The Patriots won what six or seven games in a row every week doing that exercise for CBS sports. I was like, I I didn't see any difficult throws. He just ran the offense very well, knew where to go with the football. And most of his throws were either behind the line of scrimmage five yards beyond beyond the, the line of scrimmage. And it was more about the run game and the defense and the Patriots were winning games. They were, I think at one point, the number one seed in the AFC. So I think you can, and maybe we will see in the future with how much uh, wide receiver value has gone up, a team say, hey, look, let's get a Mac Jones type. Maybe it will be Mac Jones after his first contract. Let's sign him to a middle of the road deal, build up the receiver group and the tight end group and the running backs and the offensive line around him. And it can be good enough in terms of the quarterback play. But I still think right now you need that, like I always like to say, uh, needle mover at the quarterback spot that can make those Justin Herbert, Josh Allen, and Patrick Mahomes type throws. Do you think, do you see that creating two tiers of quarterbacks that are viable tiers? Like you just have, you know, either you go get that needle mover, as you call it. And I think most, well, that's one type of analysis. I think for, for the most part, people have just been looking for needle movers in the draft, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in the first round. And then does it also create a quarterback where the market is more like the running back market, where you just kind of feel like if you can find somebody who can meet a bare minimum, uh, then you can just plug that guy in. And then the trick just becomes kind of defining what the bare minimum is. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, in being a draft analyst, I would say I, I call it the Patrick Mahomes line in 2017. He changed everything that he was this raw gunslinger from Texas tech. Didn't have a great career, but the stats were there, made a lot of bad decisions, was kind of playing street ball when Andy Reed, who is this like quarterback guru that always wanted his quarterbacks to make the smart decisions, had a lot of, uh, 
and game manager types had Alex Smith at the time when the Chiefs traded up for Patrick Mahomes and then sat him for the first 16 games of the season. It, it was kind of like, what, like, what's the plan here? And then, of course, he was unleashed on the NFL the next season through 50 touchdowns and won the MVP. It felt like since Patrick Mahomes was picked in 2017, like you mentioned, Lindsay, the NFL is looking for the needle movers. And those are the quarterbacks that have really succeeded. The biggest, best athletes with the strongest arms. I think pre-Patrick Mahomes, the league was a lot more conservative at the quarterback spot, especially in the first round, and said, Get me that stoic pocket passer who's going to run my offense, not make a lot of bad decisions. But yes, I do think in the future, a Mac Jones, a Teddy Bridgewater, a Case Keenum, a Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo was uh, seven minutes away from being a Super Bowl winning quarterback and was back in an NFC title game again. I think Kyle Shanahan has kind of proved that he can have lesser quarterbacks and not only field efficient offenses, but get his team deep into the playoffs. I think Jared Goff is another good example Maybe we will see a team in the coming years just say, hey, we'll take Jared Goff at a discounted price, trade for a Tyreek Hill, trade for a Devontae Adams, extend our star receiver, and just let the receivers really do the work in their NFL offense. The tricky thing about Patrick Mahomes, since you brought him up, is that when he came out, it's easy to go back now and look at that and say, oh, these teams missed. But there wasn't like there was evidence that he could do certain things athletically well, but there wasn't evidence that he could do what you might want him to do on an NFL field. Well, so you're looking at him and trying to project, there's some guesswork that's involved. And so hindsight being 2020, we all look stupid. If you know, you weren't on the Patrick Mahomes train, then how do you know when it's going to translate though? Like when you have a Patrick Mahomes or when you have a Deshaun Kaiser, you know? Yeah. If I knew the answer to that question, I would probably be part of an NFL front office. Yeah, we all would be. Um, Funny story on the Patrick Mahomes thing. So I'm based in Buffalo. A lot of my friends are Bills fans. In 2017, the Bills had Tyrod Taylor. They were picking 10th in the draft. I was at my friend's house for a draft party. And one of my friends is is totally random. One of my friends, uh, his buddy from college became an NFL agent. And when the Chiefs traded up with the Bills, he didn't know that the trade had gone down, but he he had he some way found that the card was turned in. This agent texted my friend and said, the Bills just picked Patrick Mahomes. My friend announces it to the draft oh party and everybody was mad, legitimately like, why would the Bills take such a big risk on this quarterback that throws interceptions, that throws across his body? So you saying hindsight is twenty twenty with Patrick Mahomes definitely strikes a chord with me because I remember that vividly to me, how you maybe maximize the chances of getting the most out of that player. I think Andy Reed, like I mentioned with that Patrick Mahomes case study, you have to cater your offense to that guy. I mean, we've, we've heard that analysis for a while now, the next year, Lamar Jackson is picked by the Ravens and they don't put him in Joe Flacco's offense. They elevate Greg Roman who was with Colin Kaepernick and Tyrod Taylor, they build that run-heavy play-action-style offense. It really needs to be more on the coaching, I think, and the personnel than the player himself. We will still see, because of Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes, big-arm quarterbacks that ultimately fail in the NFL. But Mm -hmm. I, I do think because of them, more teams are aiming for the moon at the quarterback position as opposed to just looking for a high floor quarterback prospect. Well, that's okay. So that brings us to this year's class because it feels like this year's class, at least quite a few of them, the fact that people aren't that excited about them makes me feel like 
we might kind of know where their floor is and we kind of might know where their ceiling is and they all might sort of put you in the average quarterback range, which to me, and this is obviously we'll have time to discuss them and see whether you disagree on any of those points. It feels like a weird quarterback year to project quarterbacks going high in the draft. You know, like I wonder if teams might not actually be a little bit more disciplined this year and wait till next year where the crop looks like it is better. So do you feel like the majority of this year's crop are like guys where the ceiling might be a little bit lower than usual? And and if that's the case, then are there any that you feel like are worth taking a gamble on with a high first round pick? Yeah, I think overall there aren't a ton. And like you mentioned, I, I think the majority are relatively lower upside quarterbacks. The pandemic, as it did with everyone, it, it kind of threw a wrench into this process too, because a lot of these guys are older prospects. Kenny Pickett being up there in age, Desmond Ritter as well. The past uh, draft classes, uh, Justin Fields was a lot younger. Trevor Lawrence, only a three-year starter. A lot of times, these quarterbacks that are entering the draft that are the highly coveted prospects, they're 21, maybe 22. We have a bunch of 23-year-olds and 24-year-olds in this draft class. And outside of Malik Willis, who we can talk about, there's not really any of these quarterbacks that I think you can close your eyes and say, this guy could be Justin Herbert by year three. I think Malik Willis is the only one that has a glimmer of hope to be that type. If you are drafting, though, for, for high floor, I think Kenny Pickett, Desmond Ritter, you could talk yourself into those quarterbacks, but yes, this is not a class that really aligns with that, uh, you know, aiming for the high level franchise quarterback. Why would you draft for a high floor? I don't know. I, I, and maybe I am a little skewed living in Buffalo and seeing what happened to this organization with Josh Allen. But after that Mahomes line, I am rolling the dice in the first round, hoping to get a Josh Allen or a Justin Herbert. I, I would take a step back with my ego and say, I don't really know who's going to be good here. I mean, I'm saying this as a draft analyst, but especially a quarterback, like no one knows there's guys and females way smarter than me in these front offices that make bad decisions at the quarterback spot, every single draft class. So what I would just say is pick the guy that has the most upside, because if we roll the dice and it lands the right way, we might be a team that is in that luxurious situation of having a Josh Allen or a Patrick Mahomes or a Justin Herbert, and we get him for five seasons on a cost-controlled contract. So the high floor types, I don't really understand. I don't think the uh, the goal in the first round for a quarterback should be, let's get Kirk Cousins, let's draft Andy Dalton, let's draft Teddy Bridgewater. I think it needs to be higher, especially when you take a step back and look at the landscape of the quarterbacks in today's NFL. But Bruce Feldman was on the podcast last week and Andy Dalton was kind of his comp for Kenny Pickett. Like, you know, you get a guy maybe um, that can come in and be a viable quarterback perhaps. And I was like, if that's your best case scenario, then that feels like a bad decision to take him at that spot. Like I'm with you. I think if you're going to draft that high, a quarterback, you need to be rolling the dice that you're getting a franchise quarterback. And so if your best case scenario is that they're an above average quarterback, yes, that makes you more competitive, but what does that do for you in the long term? Like you're looking for a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady or a, you know, Patrick Mahomes. And if you don't think that this guy has the capability to be that, then maybe keep that pick in your pocket. Yeah, definitely. And and I think to really think about it as a GM, if that's the type of quarterback that you're picking, and you're mediocre for two or three seasons, you're probably 
not going to have your job. Now, you could certainly yep. say if you're being risk averse, like we don't want someone that's boomer bust because we don't want to go two and 15, but you're going to lose your job either way. The one ray at, of light at the end of the tunnel is you could also hit on a Justin Herbert who, like you remember, Lindsay, was not widely regarded as the next coming of Andrew Luck. There was a lot of right. criticism about him that he was too timid, that why wasn't he more productive? And now the Chargers are in fantastic shape to be really good for a long time. So I think the gamble is worth it at the game's most valuable position. And then you can also factor in, we haven't talked about it, the disparity in money at the quarterback spot to get their rookie deal. 100%. Now we're going to be seeing quarterbacks, 45, 50, 55, $60 million. Uh, I think it's crazy when we see big boards that have a bunch of running backs and nose tackles inside the top 32 selections. you got to have quarterbacks there just yeah. because if you hit, you're set for the next five or six years. But I think you're, you're only that if that guy has upside potential. Like, so yes, to go back yes. to Herbert, was the upside something that you could see? Like where you weren't totally sure if he was it, but was the obvious, uh, was the upside that we now know he does have, was that uh, part of the risk assessment? Yeah, definitely. So going back to that 2020 draft class, I had Joe Burrow number one overall, just like everyone did. I actually had Tua at number three overall, but I was a little bit concerned about, again, the ability to not make those big throws, but he was surgically accurate, all the production at Alabama. I had Justin Herbert at number nine overall on my big board. He was my number three quarterback. I really liked him and, and I took some heat for it because a lot of people said he's too conservative. Uh, why wasn't he more productive? But I kept writing the upside. Look at the arm talent. Look at how he can run. Uh, we have seen, maybe not as much as people like, but we have seen the big time throws where you're like, wow, how did he fit that football into the back corner of the end zone? And now he's been doing that with the Chargers. So yes, with Justin Herbert, with Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, even Deshaun Watson, the upside was always there with them. And I think more of the high upside types have ultimately turned out to be success stories recently than they have in the past. So I, for probably a bunch of different reasons, but I do think one of them is that coaches feel a little bit more um, like malleable in terms of saying, this is what the talent is. Let's mold an offense around that, as opposed to like you alluded to earlier, like we run a pro style offense and you're going to drop back, you know, five steps or seven steps. And you're going to do exactly what I say, whether that's your strength or not in terms of this year's class, who are the quarterbacks? How would you rank them in terms of who has the most upside? Malik Willis is far and away the quarterback with the most upside. He's my quarterback number one. Uh, PFF had him as a, a big time throw rate of 11%. The next highest in this quarterback class was only 6.5%. So everyone wants to talk about, oh, you know, three interceptions against Old Miss, Middle Tennessee State, three interceptions, Louisiana Monroe, multiple interceptions. I saw in those games at least. 10 plays with his legs and with his arm where he counteracted those bad decisions by making ridiculous throws that truly Kenny Pickett, Desmond Ritter, Carson Strong, Sam Howell, Matt Corral just can't make. So I, I, I think in terms of upside, if you're just asking me about that, it's definitely Malik Willis far and away, even though Desmond Ritter had the big combine, I don't think he plays to that level of athleticism because of Malik Willis's arm and just how athletic of a runner he is. You can see shades of Josh Allen's not only college career from what Malik Willis had at Liberty, but just his traits on the football field. Do you think that he will be the first quarterback off the board? Now that we're starting to hear some chatter that the Panthers might just wait until after the draft and trade for Baker Mayfield, 
I'll say yes. For the longest time, it felt like Matt Rule was going to side with Kenny Pickett, even though it was at six, just because he needed a quarterback. That Matt Rule needs someone that's ready to start week one, upgrade that position so he can win close eight or nine games, get near the playoffs so he keeps his job. At this point, though, because of all the recent success stories, I feel like we always say it's a copycat league that teams are looking at how many young, talented, big-time throw quarterbacks there are. That's Malik Willis. I mean, you cannot like all the other stuff. You watch his film and you have to come away with, wow, there was six throws in that game that were Justin Herbert throws. And you don't see that with the other guys. So I think right now, a week out from the draft and watch, there'll be some rumor that comes up, you know, the day of that, that completely squashes this. But right now I feel like Malik Willis should be the odds on favorite to be the first quarterback off the board. So the Panthers do throw it all out of whack. Um, because of the desperation play and the uh, the need for somebody to step on the field immediately. How far away is Willis from being able to step on the field? Like, what is the downside to putting him out there right away? I don't think there's a ton of downside because I, I you know, keep going back to Josh Allen being in Buffalo. Early in Josh Allen's career, he was not ready to play. Nate Peterman started that first game in 2018, Josh Allen's rookie year. The Bills got blown out by the Ravens in the rain. And it was suddenly like, maybe we have to start Josh Allen early. And when he wasn't ready, what did he do? He leaned on his legs. Deshaun Watson's first start did not look ready, ran the football a bunch. Russell Wilson early in his career in 2012 with the Seahawks, same thing. You can watch those early games against those really good 49ers defenses. He was completely overwhelmed with coverage and the speed of cornerbacks. He just ran the football. So I think Malik Willis doesn't have to be this Tom Brady, Drew Brees ass coverage reader early in his career, use him in the design run game, give him some RPOs, play action, deep balls. That's where he's going to feel the most comfortable letting it rip down the football field. He'll throw some picks, but what's good. He knows the feeling after throwing some interceptions. He did that a fair amount in college. I liked that he had some adversity and he was on a team that in those power five games against Ole Miss that he felt like he had to elevate. I don't necessarily like the quarterback prospects like a Mac Jones or a Tua that have all first rounders around them. I, I think that does not prepare those quarterbacks well enough for the NFL. So maybe in an ideal world, Malik Willis isn't your week one starter where you feel like you would have the full playbook, but by October or November, I think he in a kind of a truncated system could certainly be out there starting a football game and wouldn't look much different than when Trey Lance had to start when Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt this past season. And it wasn't that bad in those two uh, relief appearances for Trey Lance. I think it's it's been interesting this draft season, more than most draft seasons, where there's been such a clear conversation about guys that are ready to start versus guys that have upside. And I think most people put Malik into the category where he has the most upside in the class. But then if you need somebody ready to start right now, then Kenny Pickett is ready to start. Sam Howell might be ready to start. And I wonder how you define what is ready to start. And maybe that's different for different offenses. Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. I think that gets thrown around kind of loosely. I just think the more experience you have and maybe the less interceptions that kind of gets pushed into, oh, he's ready to start because he didn't make a lot of bad decisions. And I watched his film and didn't see a lot of those. So he's ready to start. Desmond Ritter started 50 games. So did Kenny Pickett. So I, I think just from a coverage reading standpoint, uh, they've seen every single blitz. They've played in all different environments. I mean, Desmond Ritter played against Alabama and Georgia in his last two bowl games. So he's definitely played the high level of competition as high as it gets. 
at the college level. It, it to me, there's not really anything that sets a quarterback apart that says, "Oh, he's definitely week one ready, and this one's not." I just think in general, you want a quarterback to have a lot of experience, so the game is not too fast for him when he starts on Sundays. Who has who's number two in terms of upside in this class? It's a great question. It's probably this is going to sound crazy. It's probably Sam Howell and. He's my number five quarterback because I think he has a long way to go. But I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, a lot of these quarterbacks are older, 22, 23. Sam Howell is only 21. And he was starting as a freshman at 18 years old at North Carolina. Two really good seasons and then a somewhat of a down season this past year in 2021. The arm talent is definitely there. He's got a big arm. It's not Malik Willis's arm, but it's close. Um, definitely not going to be able to run around and create with his legs like he did at North Carolina. He's got to learn how to slide and get out of bounds a little bit more, but just strictly based on his arm strength, the fact that he has a fair amount of experience relative to his age, I think you could see maybe Sam Howell gets picked late in the first round where a team comes back in to get that fifth year option and says, Hey, look, you don't need to start right away, but we like that you're younger than any of these prospects. You have that big arm that almost seems like a requisite uh, to have that franchise quarterback in today's NFL. We'll store you. And, and we're more about, seeing you play when you're 23, 24 years old. Explain this to me, how he has so much experience, but still has a long way to go and yet could still have upside. You know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you make those three together make sense? Okay. So with Sam Howell, I think he has a long way to go in that his deep ball accuracy is not really anywhere close to where it needs to be. And I think inside the pocket, he tends to hold onto the football too long pocket presence. Uh, you know, I mentioned Tom Brady and Drew Brees earlier. They were so good. They're the two best ever, in my opinion, in terms of drifting inside the pocket, there's chaos around them. They're calm. They drift to their left. They step up, they find the running back on the check down, or they find that secondary dig route. Sam Howell is a long way to go in those perspectives. I don't think his ball placement is great. Pocket ability is not fantastic, but to go back to the Josh Allen comparison, Josh Allen wasn't very accurate down the football field, despite the big arm. And he certainly had a lot of pocket navigation issues coming out of Wyoming and really early into his Bills career. So that could be where a team says, hey, look, Josh Allen did it. Patrick Mahomes was throwing the ball across his body early in his Chiefs career or at Texas Tech. That's kind of what I see with Sam Howell. Um, but the fact that he's experienced, he's dealt with adversity. He's had a loaded roster and he's had a not so loaded roster. I like that about his profile as well. So I think the upside comes from his, like I said, his arm strength and the fact that he's only 21 years old. So we've been talking specifically about upside. What are your top five, just draft rankings for the quarterbacks? How do you rank them? I have Malik Willis at one, Kenny Pickett at two, Desmond Ritter at three, Matt Corral at four and Sam Howell at five. For Matt Corral, how do you know what will translate to the NFL? It's he's probably the most difficult evaluation in this draft class because in Ole Miss uh, or in, in Lane Kiffin's offense at Ole Miss, there was almost an RPO on every play. And, right. you know, I know that RPOs are infiltrating the NFL. They're becoming more prevalent. But to really be in a one read system that is manipulating the defense by using that play action so much, I don't really think that prepared him very well for the NFL. It gave him, you know, a. It, it put him in such a good environment to have high level uh, statistics and great efficiency like he did. But in the NFL, you do need to get from your read on the left side of the field to the middle, to the right side more often. Um, what I think will translate though, 
And again, I'm, I'm going to use Josh Allen again. The fact that Matt Corral is a gamer, that he will scramble on third and eight, he will die for a first down, take a big hit. I think that absolutely translates. And the fact, like Sam Howell, he's got a big arm. He can definitely let it rip 60, 65 yards down the field, make those difficult throws at the intermediate level. He's very willing to do that. In 2020, it got him into more trouble. He threw 12 interceptions. This past uh, season, he got a lot better, making smarter decisions and checking the ball down while still having that arm talent as kind of a last resort. So I think his toughness, the fact that he's a gamer and the arm strength will translate. He, like Sam Howell, and it's probably why they're a little lower on my rankings, I think he has a long way to go in terms of the mental aspect of playing quarterback. You know, it's funny. So being a gamer is obviously some somewhat of an intangible. Um, and I read a, a really good piece this morning by Tyler Dunn about um, Derek Carr and maybe what what people who were around him in college knew about him at the time that people who were analyzing um, for the draft might have missed on. And it seemed like a lot of the descriptors were like the intangibles are that he will succeed. Like this is a guy that we all believe is going to do whatever it takes. And from a tools standpoint, he has enough of all of the things that we know that this is a guy who's going to elevate as opposed to when there was some contrast made to Johnny Manziel, who from an intangible standpoint, there were signs that things might go in the other direction. And I'm wondering what you've come to think about how you prioritize intangibles when it comes to quarterbacks, because the intangibles are clearly um, incredibly important, specifically at that position, but there's no way to measure them or even to determine which intangibles are important. You know, if the athlete's kind of an asshole, does that matter? If he's lacking in humility, does that matter? If teammates love him or don't love him, does that matter? How do you make sense of those types of things that obviously matter in terms of developing a leader or somebody who will put the work in to succeed at such a difficult position and how you prioritize that in terms of the physical tools that you do know how to measure. Yeah, it's definitely huge. And I will say as someone that devised my own uh, grading system that has all these layers and weights, it's really like frustrating for me that, that you can't put a number on intangibles, or I think it's silly if you, if you try to do that, especially if you're not a GM that gets to talk to these guys or talks to their college coaches at length or high school coaches. Even what I think though, is just kind of a blanket statement. My thing is for quarterbacks and from 2018, that draft class on, let's say I've realized that the quarterbacks that are insecure and it sounds weird to say because these guys are in the NFL, they're making tons of money. The guys that are constantly fighting with the media or they're on, they're on Instagram leaving comments when someone says something negative about them, uh, you know, a Colin Cowherd or whatever. I'm really thinking about Baker Mayfield Obviously. here. That, that I think <laughs> that I think that that can really ding how successful they can be in the NFL and really hinder how talented they are as a quarterback in terms of what you need physically. To be a good quarterback, I think Baker Mayfield has all that talent. I think he is was worthy of the number one overall pick in the 2018 draft class. But he wasn't Johnny Manziel, but he was always so insecure about if he had a bad game and someone asked him a pointed question, it became an issue. And I think the quarterbacks that aren't really on social media too much, they're not responding to every criticism or owning up to the criticism after a bad game or a bad season or a ill-advised interception, I think just from watching those quarterbacks, I think those are the ones that get the absolute most out of their talent. 
Yeah. It's an interesting though, even that point right there just highlights how hard it is to tangibly measure that because some people would look at Derek Carr, just since that's the name that I threw out and say like, but he blocks people who are criticized, critical of him on Twitter. And, you know, he and his brothers keep a list, right. Or his brothers do right. Like, and you could turn that into a positive, right. Like he has that chip on his shoulder, but it, but clearly the two personalities, it plays out differently. So it's like the word being insecure and then trying to measure that as opposed to what the insecurity does to the behavior that comes from it. It's so complicated. Yeah, definitely. And I think that with that 2018 draft class, that was probably the most hype that we've had in a long time, maybe since 2012, uh, uh, 1983 with John Elway and Dan Marino and Jim Kelly. Uh, It's just funny how all those careers have kind of gone in different ways. And there's many reasons why that is. But I always think that the the really good GMs and why some quarterbacks go in front of others, they do get those top 30 official visits. They do go work those quarterbacks out. And I wonder if sitting there with uh, uh, Brandon Bean in Buffalo, if they were thinking between Josh Allen and Josh Rosen, if maybe Josh Allen's personality, his uh, like the fact that he's driven, that he's down to earth, that he wasn't, you know, uh, against people saying, hey, you're not that accurate and you need to improve on this. Maybe that was like the final thing that made them go Josh Allen over Josh Rosen, which mm-hmm. obviously could have sent that organization into completely different directions. So I, I do think that that does factor in a lot. These front offices have a lot of good scouts. They know football analytics has become such a big part of it. So I think they're making smarter decisions, but it's funny that that intangible thing that's been there since the beginning of time, your personality, how you interact with your teammates, with your coaches really, I think matters in the process and ultimately, you know, can change where, where a team ultimately goes at the game's most uh, vital position. Yeah, I think very much so. With regard to this year's class, comparing them to last year's quarterback class, especially since you have now tracked what last year's quarterback has been able, uh, quarterbacks have been able to do on the field in the NFL. How would you, would any of this year's quarterbacks infiltrate you know, the, the top five from last year, the order that they went in the draft obviously was one Lawrence two Zach Wilson, three Trey Lance, and then fields was 11 and Mac Jones was 15. Those were the top five. I have Malik Willis graded pretty closely to where I had Trey Lance. And if you think about it, they're pretty similar quarterbacks that they're raw, uh, big time runners that the arm talent through the roof. So I looking at my grading system, I wasn't shocked that those were similar. I have Kenny Pickett graded similarly to where I had Mac Jones and that I, I think they can be good game managers, occasionally drop it in the bucket down the field, but maybe that's not something I'm going to lean on them and expect them to do early in their career. So, yeah, I, I mean, for as much as this quarterback class is, is is really getting pushed down and criticized, it's a terrible class, it's 2013 all over again. I think those two, just from the film, uh, would be at least in the conversation. I, I don't think they're anywhere near Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, Um, but Trey Lance and Malik Willis, I see some similarities in Mac Jones and Kenny Pickett. In terms of the teams that might take these guys, who do you think should draft a quarterback in the first round based on their roster construction and how effective it will actually be for them? Well, that's a good question because the Panthers on the surface seem like the most obvious team to pick a quarterback. But the end of your question, like in terms of the roster makeup, I don't know if I'd want to throw Malik Willis onto that team with the offensive line not being very good. You have DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, but not a, a great receiver group. You lost Curtis Samuel last offseason. 
The defense is not very good. You don't want to put a young quarterback in a lot of like 21 nothing holes starting the second quarter or starting the third quarter. So the Panthers seem obvious, but I, I would think that they should maybe shy away, maybe trade back and then try to maybe land a Kenny Pickett or a Desmond Ritter later in the first round. But the Atlanta Falcons and the Seattle Seahawks, to me, have at least the amount of talent at receiver with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Uh, to have Drew Locke in front of you, I, I think if you're Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett or Desmond Ritter, that's fine. And then in Atlanta, it felt like last year they probably should have picked uh, Trey Lance to sit behind Matt Ryan. Pick Malik Willis to sit behind Marcus Mariota. You know, as your roster sits today, if you're running the Falcons, if you're Terry Fontenot, their GM, the roster is not going to compete in the NFC this year. But learning the intricacies from Marcus Mariota, another athletic quarterback, I think 2023 and beyond, you could really, again, tap into all the upside that Malik Willis has. So that would obviously rely on them seeing Malik Willis as a franchise guy that they think is worth taking this year, as opposed to potentially holding on to a draft pick for next year and taking somebody in that class. I think my argument, and I'd be interested in your pushback for the Falcons is that when I look at their roster, I see, and their schedule, I see about like three or four wins, maybe like, I think that this is a team that's probably in the running to pick pretty early in next year's class. And there are, are so many holes, obviously, if you're looking at a team projecting three to four wins. So I wonder if from a roster construction standpoint, does it make more sense to just punt the quarterback position this year, roll out Mariota, get your three to four wins, but plug in some other weapons that make your roster better so that you can go get that quarterback in next year's class and then have that rookie contract for the quarterback where you're able to maximize your potential with that, I guess a little bit better. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there is a wrong way for the Falcons to go about it. And that's because I do like Malik Willis a lot more than most. So if they pick him, give him someone of a red shirt season, I'd be fine with that. But what you just pointed out certainly would make a lot of sense. My only pushback would be the Eagles have that extra pick in the first round next year. The giants apparently want to move back from either five or seven. They want a first rounder. The Dolphins, the Jets, there's other teams that have those extra picks already. And I, it's like everyone is positioning themselves for 2023. I think it's going to be a good class with CJ Stroud and Bryce Young, maybe Will Levis from Kentucky. There's not going to be six or seven franchise quarterbacks in next year's first round. I'm almost like thinking if I'm Terry Fontenot, when I say, hey, I, I would love to punt on this class and turn my attention to 2023, but man, there's going to be a, a major horse race to get one of those first picks if these quarterbacks ultimately pan out. Maybe let's just pick Malik Willis and get ahead of the curve by a year and then try to still build out build out our roster, trading back on the second day and, and really still building for 2023. But then we don't have to use a draft pick on it. We already have our guy in Malik Willis at that point. Does that happen at eight? You mean if they pick Malik Willis? If they pick Malik, do they have to take him at eight? Would that... I mean, they couldn't really Probably. afford to wait, right? If that was the plan. Probably not, but it's funny. It's like, I, I've talked to a few teams and then a few other media members like Pete Prisco, uh, my colleague at CBS sports thinks no quarterbacks are going in the top 10. If that's the case, and maybe, you know, all these GMs are in the know, they're talking, they're gossiping with each other. If that's the case, then yeah, sure. Trade back in an extra third. That's what you need to build this roster. But my, I'm always of the belief if you like a quarterback, you got to just pick him. Yeah. And if you look at the history, even last five or so years, 
the quarterbacks who are ultimately successful were either the first overall pick or they were the um, byproduct of a trade up where teams aren't like, hey, let's just trade back three times, then we'll pick you. That doesn't really give the biggest vote of confidence for a quarterback. When the Bills 100%. traded back, when the Bills traded back in 2013 to get EJ Manuel, they got extra selections. But here in Buffalo, it was kind of like, oh, why didn't they just pick him at eight? They weren't really that sold on him. So they had to wait until 16. So I'm always of the belief if you like a quarterback a lot, and especially one with upside, just pick him in the first round. That's the one spot that I'm fine with or even trading up for because it's such a valuable position. Especially if there's a drop off in terms of that upside, like it sounds like we're describing where it's like Malik and then let's figure out which of the other ones, you know, we want to put it number two. Um, the saints quarterback, do you see it or not this year? I could see them being the team that, you know, packages up that move up that they already made to get inside the top 10 to maybe pick Malik Willis to learn from Jameis Winston. Uh, and I think again, the trade that they made was a little head scratching with the Eagles. Um, maybe they just wanted to position themselves ahead of the chargers to get that left tackle, to fill in that huge hole that they uh, have after losing uh, Teron Armstead. That's a good point. Again, I, in general, though, to trade up and not pick a quarterback, I'm not the biggest advocate of that as a draft analyst. Like the history outside of really Julio Jones, I believe the Jets traded up for Darrell Rebus. Outside of that, a lot of the trade ups in round one uh, for a position player or a tackle usually uh, aren't the best in terms of down the road, how they turn out, the return on investment. And I think Jameis Winston was a good quarterback before he got injured last season. Now you can take away Sean Payton this year and say, Hey, it's not going to be the same. They need receiver. They need offensive line. The defense is getting up there in age. I could see them doing it. Uh, if they trade up to like five and pick a tackle, I think it will be lauded on draft night. Like, Hey, they got Evan Neal. They got their left tackle, but they would have traded up so much in a class that has a few other really good offensive tackles. I think your point looking at and assessing the whole position group, is vital in the draft that you can't just fall in love with the prospect and just forget about all the other alternatives. You got to realize, Hey, maybe I don't know everything about these draft prospects. Let's not trade up for Sammy Watkins. Let's pick Mike Evans or Odell Beckham jr. So if the saints trade up for a quarterback, I'm fine with it. If they trade up again and it's for an offensive tackle or another position, that would be really head scratching to me. Do you think this Baker trade happens on draft day? It could. I, yeah, I, I, uh, have, seen some reports that it could be after the draft. This could be like almost when the Panthers are on the clock. Like if they feel like, Hey, we can maybe trade back or we are going to just pick our tackle here. Maybe Charles cross or Iki Aquanu and plug in Baker Mayfield to the offense. That could ultimately be the case. We've seen it happen with Josh Rosen in the past. I, I think it could be one of those draft day deals where kind of the deadline spurs the action. It just feels like the team, if you don't do that, if he doesn't move on draft day, then whoever doesn't like you're in a position of desperation, you're going to have to pay. And that's not strategically where you want to be. Um, The lions quarterback this year or no, probably not. I mean, like I'm all about positional value and I've, you know, spoken ad nauseum now about uh, Malik Willis. I think the situation would be good, but I don't think it's a necessity. I think like we mentioned at the outset of this, you know, they can get quality play from, from Jared Goff if this roster improves. And I think for being the number or the team with the number two overall pick, the roster's not that bad. I think there's a lot more um, optimism for this Lions team in 2022 
compared to most teams that hold the number two overall pick. It's normally like, man, they're way, they're way far away from even being remotely close to contending. They played hard down the stretch for Dan Campbell. They lost a lot of heartbreaking games last year, the 70 yard field goal from Justin Tucker early in the season. I could just see them trying to build out their roster and, and, and kind of doing what you were suggesting earlier about the Falcons building out the roster after 2023, we can get out from Jared Goff's contract if, if we don't love him at that point. And then we can insert Bryce Young onto a team that has, you know, a lot of weapons, a, a, a decent offensive line and a much better defense. I think they get to a point where like when they get good enough, then he becomes the problem that's holding them back. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Where they are right now, he's not their problem, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Like yeah, for sure. I, I yeah, I, I would be shocked if they I would. I would disapprove, I guess, if they went and got a quarterback this year, which just feel like a mismanagement of resources. Um, last one, Steelers. Do you think there's somebody that makes sense for the Steelers? Well, I think Desmond Ritter, who we haven't really talked about a lot. I think Desmond Ritter would make sense. And this is kind of my theory on the Steelers. Kevin Colbert, their GM. This is going to be his last draft. He's been there forever. It's been so much stability inside that Steelers organization. He was there when they picked Ben Roethlisberger in 2004 in the Eli Manning draft, Philip Rivers draft. And what was Ben Roethlisberger? He was a four-year starter, smaller school, helped them win a lot of games. Some athleticism could create, but wasn't like Michael Vick. That's Desmond Ritter. He was at a four-year starter at Cincinnati, elevated that program, won a lot of football games, 44-6 and six as a starter at Cincinnati. I could see them, if they don't trade up for a Malik Willis, who apparently Mike Tomlin is enamored with, if that ultimately doesn't come to fruition, I could see them saying, Hey, this guy reminds us a lot of Ben Roethlisberger, which I know is lofty because he's a hall of famer and he's the all-time leader and everything uh, for the Steelers. But I could see them liking that profile and saying, Hey, we got a good defense. We like our ability to pick receivers in round two. We already have some good receivers on the roster. Let's just insert Desmond Ritter. And that would be the, you know, week one startability type compete with Mitch Trubisky, Mason Rudolph, get the most out of him early in his career while we still have, you know, TJ Watt and a lot of these good players on the defensive side. Who would the Seahawks, who, who makes the most sense for them? Since you mentioned them as a team that you could see leaving the draft with a quarterback. They are probably the hardest team to pinpoint because it's like, they probably should be rebuilding, but they have a 70 year old head coach. And if they're rebuilding, then they should have traded DK Metcalf this offseason where we saw Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams get a huge haul for their former teams. They didn't do that. Even Tyler Lockett was kind of early on speculated to be someone that could be traded. They didn't do that. They trade for or, or they get Drew Locke in that Russell Wilson trade. It, it's, I can't understand the philosophy or the short term or long term view. I think the easy layup here would be, hey, they would gravitate toward Malik Willis because of the similarities to Russell Wilson. Uh, but there's not really one that really stands out because I, I can't know, are they ready to try to compete in the NFC West? That's really, really good. Or are they like, let's rebuild. If that's the case, they shouldn't even pick a quarterback at all. They should trade back, try to get a bunch of picks and maybe be the team that moves out of number nine to have a team move up to pick a quarterback. And it almost feels like they want to deprioritize the quarterback as weird as so that weird. sounds like they want to yeah. be that, like almost like a San Francisco offense, you know, where you just need a quarterback to just be good enough, do the things that we want you to do. We're going to be a run first offense. And also, by the way, uh, don't put a rookie quarterback behind that line and set him up to fail. Right. Like if Russell Wilson couldn't even be himself behind that line, then maybe build that first. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, offensive tackle probably makes the most sense. But if we are going to say a quarterback that would fit the profile of, of de-emphasizing the passing game in 2022, it seems crazy. Matt Corral does have a connection to Pete Carroll through Lane Kiffin. That Lane Kiffin was an assistant when they were both at USC. I'm sure you know those days and they're fond memories for you um, at USC. I could see him being like, hey, you're going to run some RPOs. We're going to let you chuck it deep to DK Metcalf. Uh, the Seahawks do have a pretty long history of some surprising first round picks that people weren't expecting. So if Matt Corral, who's kind of flown under the radar being injured during the pre-draft process, he could be that one holy crap moment inside the top 10 where Pete Carroll, you know, gets that vote of confidence from Lane Kiffin. They pick Matt Corral, who doesn't have to do a ton. He can't really read defenses right now, but he can hand the football off and he can throw a slant and a go ball to Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. It's a really interesting connection. I, f- I can't, yeah, I keep, I keep going back to the fact that Pete and Lane are so different mm-hmm. in terms of just like what they even want to do offensively. Sometimes certainly their personalities couldn't be more different. Obviously has a lot of respect for him having worked with him for a while. Um, but I don't know. I'd be, I'd love to be a fly on the wall of that conversation and see uh, what went down there. Chris Trapasso, thank you so much as always really good perspective and insight. Thanks. Lindsay. All right, you can find Chris on Twitter at Chris Trapasso, and you can find his work on the CBS Sports website. Big thanks to you for listening. Still two more podcasts to go before the draft, one that will be out tomorrow, I think. I'm talking to Matt Harmon from Reception Perception, another former NFL media guy who created his own methodology by which to evaluate wide receivers that is in many ways meant to be a predictive tool and therefore can be a useful tool heading into the draft. We'll talk to him about what he sees in the draft prospects at that position, who he sees as effective comps for those people, and where their specific skills could be most valuable in the NFL in terms of landing spots teams. So look for that coming soon. In the meantime, if you would take a sec to rate and review the pod, that would be awesome. If you aren't already a subscriber and you think that you might like to hear more, that is what that button is for. And as always, I would love to hear your thoughts on the stuff that we discussed today. Who's your favorite quarterback in the draft? If you were the Panthers, who would you take? If you were the Falcons, would you take a quarterback? You heard our thoughts. I'd love to hear yours. My Twitter is Lindsay underscore Rhodes. My Instagram is Lindsay Rhodes NFL. Big thanks to Andrew Emmer for producing this episode. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. Marisa Rivas is the acting director of sports podcasts for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Serious XM Podcasts.